Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist. Seriously Geeky. Episode 67, Everything Arises in the Mind of the Yogi. John Dido Lori Roshi, abbot of the Zen Mountain Monastery in New York and well-known Buddhist author, continues his discussion with Robert Spellman on the intersection between contemporary art and contemplative awareness. Listen in to find out how art can be an expression of enlightenment, and why nothing breaks the heart like modern love and modern art. This is part two of a two-part series. Many people in the West, you know, in the so-called developed nations, seem to be under the sway of nihilism, which my colleague Judith Simmer-Brown once described as being marked by three qualities, depression, arrogance, and loss of moral direction. (laughs) And much of the art that appears in contemporary culture seems to bear this out. What can we do? Yeah. I tell the artists to try to shut up and sit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, there's no way that an artist is going to express themselves and not end up having their feelings and uh, their experience of life uh, appear on the canvas or in the poetry or so on. In fact, you don't even need to be an artist. We're constantly expressing the deeper things that are happening with us by body language, by attitude, by, and so on. So... It's got to do with the individual and where they're at. And uh, to me, the art is a vehicle for taking care of that. Uh, I was telling taking people, care of the state of mind. You mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. I was telling people the other night, uh, last night. There was um, at one point I was also doing commercial photography, and I had an assignment to photograph some Volkswagens. And I had this very obnoxious sales manager who wanted to direct me. And I had to approve every picture. I had to make Polaroids. When he said it was okay, I photographed it. And I was so frustrated by the end of the day. I mean, I was fuming. And as I left, I decided on the way home, since I had all the photographic equipment in the car, I was going to stop and do a little photography. And I did. I photographed for a couple of hours, graffiti along the highways. On the, on the walls of the cliffs and so on. And I had a great time, and I thought I had some wonderful images. I was so thrilled with what I had. Got back to the studio. And that evening, I had a date to go out to dinner. I had a dinner date. But I went into the studio. I processed the film. I made the slides. I looked at them. I was delighted. My date shows up. And I said, look, before we go out to dinner, would you like to look at these images? And she said, Sure. So, and she knew the creative audience. We did the creative audience many times before. And I started projecting these images. And the next thing you know, she's sobbing. Then she's crying. And then she's yelling at me, why do you always make these awful, ugly, angry images? And she went on and on and stormed out. That was the end of uh, our dinner date. And I looked at them and I couldn't understand. I didn't see it. I didn't see that that sales manager was still in my gut and I was expressing it. And I began to realize that what I needed to do was to deliberately photograph anger, Mm. find metaphors for anger and express it and really get familiar with it. And any other place that was a barrier in my way of seeing, 
that if I photographed it and showed it to a creative audience and was getting feedback that I was seeing it, then I knew I was on the right track. And Mm. it's through that process that you can finally get rid of it. Mm. One of my diseases was, I remember student uh, people would look at my photographs and say, oh, that looks like mine are white. And I hated it Mm -hmm. because I wanted to look like me. Mm -hmm. I thought I was kind of, you know, hooked on him. So I started deliberately photographing Mina White Mm -hmm. until I could get it out of my system and know when it was Mina White and know when it was me. Mm -hmm. So the art process itself, the creative expression itself, can become a vehicle for freeing oneself of that barrier. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's one of the things also that I have been co- thinking about in uh, anticipation of this conversation was both the warning about not domesticating your mind on the one hand, because I think a lot of people uh, interpret sitting meditation that way. You know, it becomes a sort of enforcement of some, you know, conceptualized mm-hmm. settling or, or uh, you know, forcing the mind into uh, just to be mm-hmm. to behave well or something. Right. Right. And, you know, that being an issue that I, I noticed a lot of younger practitioners get caught up in. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's the issue of what, um, you know, there's a, I think it's from the Tibetan tradition, there's an expression that everything arises in the mind of the yogi. Mm-hmm. You know, that, uh, you know, it, it goes from visions of celestial Buddhas to cheeseburgers and sex and murder mm-hmm. and back and forth and mm-hmm. throughout, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing. And so as artists, how do we actually be honest about what the, wildness of the mind is Mm -hmm. you know what is the content of the wildness Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without indulging in it or without um... well that's the key i mean anything that's thinkable we we can think you know Mm -hmm. and that freaks out a lot of people you know they find their mind thinking about things that are not socially acceptable Mm -hmm. Uh, they need to recognize that anything that's thinkable we can think the thing is, when you attach to it, it becomes a problem. Or when you act on it, it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, So mostly these things just pass through and uh, they're gone. You know, fleeting thoughts. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested in how uh, some artists, uh, Shakespeare comes to mind, somehow takes the, uh, you know, the, all of the human experiences of betrayal and rage and dishonesty and murder and mm-hmm. violence and the whole thing and and the experience of, of watching uh, Macbeth is one of my favorite plays mm-hmm. every time Macbeth every time I see Macbeth I I'm sure as he's thinking at the beginning that he's he's actually going to come to his senses he's not going to do it and I, I feel okay about him and it's mm-hmm. going to go all okay mm-hmm. and he doesn't <laughs> right. but there's something about that about how Shakespeare captures the energy of of confusion and somehow presents it in a way that I find quite awake. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's as though it's being presented by an awake person. Yes. Yes. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, his, his vision includes the totality of the thing, not just the dark parts of it, but yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Another thought that was on my mind, I know it's not supposed to be there, but it is, and that is an essay that I read recently by a contemporary Polish artist named Artur Zmijewski. Do you happen to know his work? He's a videographer and performance artist. No. I actually don't know his work at all, but this essay that he wrote last summer was, has been bouncing around online and so on. I'll yeah. send you a copy. It's quite interesting. Uh-huh. One of the things that he says is that 
uh, for years, um, you know, for maybe the past 100 years in the West, art has fought for autonomy. It's fought to be free from, from the church, from the state, from, you know, money, mm-hmm. whatever, you mm-hmm. know, that it's, it's sort of fought for its mm-hmm. own autonomy. And he is arguing in this essay that in fighting for its own autonomy, it's basically relegated itself to irrelevance. You know, that it's, outs- it's, it's placed itself outside of culture. Mm. An interesting thought. It's a very interesting thought. And I, because, you know, I studied art in the West to, uh, while you were studying with Minor White, I was over across the river at Mass, Mass At, as we uh-huh. called it. And um, so many of the ideas that were circulating at that time were, you know, the very kind of highfalutin contemporary and the beginnings of postmodernist ideas were leaking in and mm-hmm. so on. And the ideas always depressed me somehow. <laughs> I always felt depressed. That's the only word I could use mm. that, that I couldn't imagine why, you know, what, the, what would be so exciting about such a thing. When I read this essay by Zmajewski, I, I feel that he's on to something that there is a there's a way in which uh, uh, if we over conceptualize what we're doing and place it outside of a social activity that it becomes that's what it, it ends up it being outside of activity mm-hmm. and I've, I've gone a bit further with that thought that uh, things like what you're describing about how to work with the mind how to work with anger uh, how to uh, take a camera and actually work with your own state of mind uh, in such a way that you're not attaching to it uh, mm-hmm. is suddenly bringing the activity of art right back into everyday life or everyday experience mm-hmm. in a way that could have enormous relevance. Mm-hmm. You know, not, uh, what's that, there's a country yeah. western song that has a line something like, nothing will break your heart like modern love and modern art. <laughs> I haven't heard that. I forget what song it is. I, I kind of agree, I mean, but I, I think, I'm not sure of what he's saying, where he places fine art. I mean, fine art is its own cause. You create the art for the sake of the art. But as I said, any artist that's going to create anything, do any kind of creative expression, in what they create is going to be who that artist is Mm -hmm. and the things that are part of his being or her being. So that in and of itself gives it relevance you know mm-hmm. but i think while the artist is working i mean when i'm photographing i'm just having a hell of a time photographing mm-hmm. i'm enjoying it i'm enjoying my subjects i'm enjoying what i'm seeing and feeling and expressing and it's it's so incredibly fulfilling it's not until many months later that i begin to think about does this have anything to say to to the outside world, mm-hmm. shall I make an exhibit out of it? Is this something that would work in a book? Or, you know, what can I do with this mm-hmm. work? How can I communicate what I've been seeing? That comes much later. It comes much later, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I um, emphasize that in my own classes at Naropa about looking very closely at the sequence. Uh, where does the creative impulse, how does it arise, what occurs, and and then any analytical or conceptualizing of it, does that precede it? Does it accompany it? Or does it follow it? And I don't assume that it's going to be any of those things, or maybe it's all of them, but I think the sequence is really important Mm -hmm. to emphasize. Mm -hmm. Well, for me in my own work, it's always been, at least the last 30 years, really a process of discovery more than anything else. I mean, the discovery of 
of the images and a discovery of what those images had to say outside of my experience of them. Mm -hmm. I don't go into it with a preconceived notion. I mean, if I do, it ends up as a kind of a photograph with a preconceived notion. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I do still document things around the monastery when I see things happening. Mm -hmm. I think it's good to have for the, put it on the web or one of the journals or so on. That's a different kind of photography. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, you know, real creative expression to me is a process of discovery. Mm -hmm. It's entering the mystery. Mm -hmm. Which I like to think of as a form of participation. You know, you're participating in phenomena, which is a way of participating in the world. It's more to me a process of merging, mm. of intimacy, mm -hmm. of no separation. Mm -hmm. Self is forgotten. What Dogen says, Dogen means when he says, seeing form with the whole body and mind, hearing sounds with the whole body and mind, one understands them intimately. Now, in intimacy, there's no observer. You're not standing mm -hmm. back anymore. Mm -hmm. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's an expression of enlightenment, you could say. This very body and mind is the body and mind of the universe. Mm -hmm. I think maybe the, um, the earlier conversation about the, uh, you know, art being separated out might be kind of almost a social result of many, many people conceptualizing. Do you know what I mean? That there's a, there's a sort of a almost social conceptualization going on that's generally agreed upon, but not examined. Something in in like terms that. of art, you mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, isn't that what uh, galleries do and mm -hmm. museums and art critics and all of that? I mean, I think any artist worth their salt needs to just ignore all of that and do their work, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. I get myself in trouble all the time because of uh, these questions that you're asking, I think, are really important ones. Uh, sometimes... People ask questions about art that are very tacky. I mean, they really have nothing to do with art. Mm -hmm. You know, don't in any way add to understanding what the process is about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also there's a sense that creativity is something that's only a few have. That's another, you know, I have students, everybody has to practice art that comes to the monastery and trains. And I hear these people saying, well, I, I'm not creative. And somehow, somewhere in their life, somebody convinced them, probably when they were children, that they're not creative. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like saying, I, you know, I mean, it's, creativity to me is part of being human. Mm -hmm. Everybody has it. We're all endowed with it, you know. And um, it's done in many different ways. I mean, I think of my grandmother who was, you know, illiterate, uneducated one of the most creative people I ever met. Mm -hmm. But she didn't do it with a paintbrush. She did it with, you know, her sewing, her cooking, and other things she did. Mm -hmm. But it was it was creative expression. Mm -hmm. I mean, Grandma was in the food you ate <laughs> and the sweater you wore. And, yeah. When I got out of mass art, I, the first job I got was in a display company uh, as a spray painter. And we made displays for uh, shoe stores and... Mm -hmm. uh, appliance stores and things uh -huh. and one of my co-workers was a man named tony salerno and tony loved to eat and he would come over to me every every day at some point 
mid-morning, he would come over to my part of the shop and he would tell me about the meal he had had the night before. <laughs> and, and in the process of telling me about the meal, he would do a drawing. He'd just take his carpenter's pencil <laughs> off of his ear and he would do a drawing on a, you know, a, the side of a cardboard uh-huh. box and he would do a diagram of the plate uh-huh. and he'd show where the prime rib was uh-huh. and where the peas were. And, and uh, he would, all while he was describing it, he'd uh-huh. be talking and, uh-huh. and drawing the, his so, meal the night so, before. So sweet. I try to tell my students that when they're drawing, you know, I tell them about Tony Salerno. One of my drawing instructors was Tony Salerno because uh, he he did it with with not an iota of self consciousness. Exactly. He just uh, drew his meal from the exactly. night before. Exactly. Yeah. Wish I had some of those drawings. Mm. <laughs> they would be uh, on big pieces of cardboard. <laughs> we were in New York. Uh, my wife and I were in New York a couple of weeks ago, and we happened on a flea market. Uh, somewhere just on the edge of Chelsea. And uh, one of the vendors in there had um, advertising art that was done probably in the 1950s and 60s, you know, just the ink wash drawings that Mm -hmm. were done for newspaper ads. And I I practically want to fly back to New York to get some of these because they Mm -hmm. were probably only $15 or $20 a piece. Mm -hmm. But they were the most beautiful paintings of things, just done in black and white with very, very sure brush strokes Mm -hmm. and and completely luminous in there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they were made for reproduction. Right. And I suspect they were made with a, 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 a maybe a more practiced Tony Salerno method, uh-huh. you know, where the, <laughs> the people were, they were mm-hmm. not attempting to make art. They were, mm-hmm. they were just uh, doing a representation. of. Right. One of them was a, a drawing of wooden coat hangers. Mm-hmm. You know, those old wooden yeah. uh, coat yeah. hangers. And they were, they were so spare and beautiful, just done in, mm. in uh, black ink, different mm-hmm. la- layers of black ink mm-hmm. and brush. Mm. I think I've asked almost everything that I've, uh, that I've thought of asking. I don't know if there's, there are other things that you'd like to talk about, about maybe the, um, the social action work um, that you're currently teaching. Well, one of the um, branches of the monastery is uh, Zen Environmental Studies Institute. It's a separate corporation, and um, we created it about 16 years ago because I kept talking about the environment and, you know, realizing that I'm talking to a lot of people who have never been in the environment and that I, to make it real, I needed to take them off and take them into the wilderness. Mm-hmm. And so we started doing wilderness trips, and that expanded and uh, became teaching things like tracking. I mean, tracking has a lot to teach about being in the woods mm-hmm. and seeing and feeling sure. and hearing and smelling, foraging, wilderness skills, survival techniques, that sort of thing. The wilderness trips, what we started doing about five years ago is asking people, we go on a trip that may be a week, 10 days or two weeks, and we ask them to express what their experience is, using either poetry or painting. Some of them do watercolors, some of them photography. But to uh, not document the trip, but rather express their feelings. And that we've found that what it does is it ends up giving people a much deeper appreciation and it kind of opens their eyes to what they're in the middle of, Mm -hmm. much more than if they were not Mm -hmm. asked to do that. And again, we use the koans. You know, we give them a koan at the outset, and they visit that 
throughout the entire process. And one of the things they're working on right now during our 90-day intensive training period uh, assignment that I gave them is I asked them to find some subject that they can return to each week again and again over the next 90 days that will be there, that will still be there. So it needs to be some kind of a fixed object. And that they should return to that each time and sit in its presence and then express through whatever medium they're working in uh, what it is that they experienced at that time and then take this back with them. And gradually as the 90 days opens up, they will end up with a series of images, either poetic images or visual images. And they can switch freely among those. You know, they could draw one day, write a line the next day. No, I've asked them to stick with one medium. Mm -hmm. But also the other thing is is that a lot of these people are not trained artists, so they're, they're also learning the technique as they're going along. But hopefully, I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's the first time we've done this. Mm. They're going to see, first of all, impermanence. They're going to understand impermanence mm. in a very that everything is in a constant state of becoming. Nothing is fixed. And if you, as a photographer, just sitting in the presence of a rock, you know, and watching it, it changes. You know, I mean, clouds uh, move away, and now the shadows are deep and sharp, and it's very craggy looking, very sharp looking. And now the clouds come back over. Soft light fills, so the shadows are not so deep and it becomes voluptuous and soft and so on. It's the same rock, mm-hmm. you know. And then what happens in our way of seeing also changes. The more you're with something, the more you see. And the subject reveals itself. It peels mm-hmm. back layers, you know. Mm-hmm. You go deeper and deeper and deeper and hopefully that's what they're going to discover in this process. Mm. Uh, they'll know, we use the creative audience, they'll, they'll get feedback from each other on what the other person's experience of their art is. And uh, that process in itself asks people to be very open with a piece of art, you know, to let it all in, to put aside liking and disliking, mm-hmm. and try to see, try to feel, what does it smell like? Are there any sounds when you look at it? You know, all these things are happening subconsciously, but people don't know it. And it's a way of, uh, of looking at art or listening to music or reading a piece of poetry, going to it in a spirit of openness and receptiveness and allowing things in. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that we don't do. We filter. We mm-hmm. constantly filter mm-hmm. against our reference system, whatever that happens to be. Mm-hmm. When the people in this program are doing the, um, uh, they, uh, you know, when they visit the rock, how much time, uh, and they're doing that each day, at least once a day. Yeah. And how much time are they spending with the rock? Maybe half hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that um, drawing has a way of um, tenderizing. That when you draw something, you it tenderizes you completely apart from whether it's a good drawing or not. Mm-hmm. That something about tracing the shape of something with right. a tool, right, and slowly having it reveal itself on the, yeah, on the medium. Yeah, and it will. It does reveal itself. Mm. 
I noticed a related thing in uh, in my own classes at Naropa that I have students draw each other, mm-hmm. and uh, in as part of drawing training, and um, I discovered somewhat accidentally that um, because I was just I wanted people to do fast portraits, you know, mm-hmm. just uh, many many fast portraits. Mm-hmm. But one of the uh, side benefits of it that I hadn't anticipated was that um, it coalesces the group of students. Yeah, they they see each other and they mm-hmm. allow themselves to be seen. Mm-hmm. And I ask them on the first time would we'll do it during a semester. I will ask. I say, "What do you notice?" And invariably, people will say, "Everyone is so beautiful." Mm-hmm. Invariably, mm-hmm. it's never um, mm-hmm. never people say this is just a nightmare. It's, <laughs> it's horrible. And mm-hmm. I, that I think that there is something about, I've never tried it with writing or I must be using photography in a different mm-hmm. way. I think I'm, I must, I'm just more, I take thousands and thousands of mm-hmm. photographs, but I think I'm just sort of gathering mm-hmm. things. I'm not, uh, I should probably be paying more attention to what mm-hmm. I'm doing, but I do draw and paint a lot. Mm-hmm. And I notice that it has an effect of locating me in a place. Uh-huh. And I, yeah. this program sounds great. I mean, if they're doing that every day. Mm-hmm. Going to a, going and visiting a rock or a tree. Or... Mm. And speaking of portraits, we have uh, I have a portrait exercise that I use uh, in the workshops, and this has to be in longer workshops and uh, like week long or ten day workshops. Toward the end of it, after they've gotten the technique down, I pair people up and one camera between them with a Polaroid back. Or now we use digital. Mm-hmm. And one of the students becomes the subject and the other becomes the photographer. And it's just a portrait, just Mm -hmm. head and shoulders. And I ask them not to mess with backgrounds and lighting and so on, you know, just flat lighting. And the student that's a photographer stands there, takes all the light readings and everything, stands there with the shutter release in their hand. The subject holds something in their hand and... When the subject feels that they are projecting what they want to project, mm-hmm. that it's on their face, mm-hmm. they signal by dropping the thing out of their hand and the photographer releases the shutter. Mm-hmm. They then develop the Polaroid and they both, although, and at that, at that second of the release of the shutter, they both write down in a single process, a paragraph, the subject, what they were feeling, the photographer, what they saw, mm-hmm. and then they develop the Polaroid and see what the camera saw. Mm-hmm. If all three agree, that part of the exercise is complete, but it never agrees. So they have <laughs> to keep doing it mm-hmm. until there's agreement on all three. After there's agreement on all three, second part of the exercise is the photographer now directs the subject and tries to bring out what they mm-hmm. think they want to photograph. And again, time of the release, subject writes what they were feeling, photographer writes what they were seeing, develop the Polaroid, if it agrees, it's finished, if it don't agree, keep doing it until there's agreement. Mm. Then they switch, photographer becomes the subject, subject becomes the photographer. Well, that exercise just takes a good part of a day. You know, I've taken courses in portrait photography. This teaches more... Mm, than any course, any full semester course, just in one afternoon. I bet. The, the kind of seeing that takes place, mm. the little nuances and, yeah. and that, that make a communication. You, you stop seeing people's faces in the old way. Mm. 
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.